And this morning we're going to be talking about the benefit of sanctification. The benefit, say the benefit of sanctification or the benefit of holiness. It is a benefit of the atonement for us to be set apart and to set apart ourselves unto the Lord. So the benefit of sanctification. 1 Peter 1, 15. Give you time to turn there. Amen. Now, as I go through this material this morning, you're, you're going to probably ask the question, why am I moving so fast? And it is because I have so much material to cover, okay? So uh, just, just get the tape. If you can't write the notes down that quick, just get the tape or CD, whatever we have these days. Okay, reel to reel, I don't know. Eight track, I, don't, I think we're beyond that. But, you know, whatever, whatever. And uh, praise the Lord, you don't have to pay for that. Just, just put in your order, okay? And, and you can be blessed, blessed with that, all right? Praise the Lord. Okay, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. If you have it, say praise the Lord. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Amen? Lord, we thank you right now for your blood, your word, your spirit, God. We thank you for helping us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. The benefit of sanctification. Hallelujah. I can't tell you how excited I am. I get excited about preaching holiness. I, I'll get excited about preaching everything. I get excited, especially though, about preaching on the oneness of God and um, prophecy, but holiness. Because holiness is our identification. Amen. It's what sets us apart along with the doctrine of the oneness of God and the apostolic teaching of the new birth. Holiness, our identification of holiness sets us apart from the rest of the people that may be in the church world system. So I love, I love holiness. It's not something that's a doctrine to me only. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I love it, I love it, I love it. And I have a conviction about holiness. Amen. And so I'm going to teach you, and I pray it's a blessing to you. The benefit of holiness, or the benefit of sanctification, means to set apart, the word means to set apart, for holy use or holy service. So about holiness or sanctification. Again, to be set apart, say set apart, for holy use or holy service. The Hebrew word is kodesh. It means to be clean, to make clean ceremonially or morally. It is translated in the Old Testament as consecrate, dedicate, hallow, holy, purify, and sanctify. The Hebrew word kodesh. In the Greek New Testament, it's hagiosmos, which is to make holy or to purify or consecrate. It's translated by these words, sanctified, Hallow, be holy, and holiness. So when you put all those together, you're talking about being consecrated, dedicated, clean, pure, being set apart unto God, amen, and set apart from or separated from the defiling things of this world. 
So holiness has two parts to it. It has a, a positive and a negative side. The negative side is being set apart from the filth and the corruption of this world. Being set apart from sin. And then the positive side of holiness is to be dedicated to or set apart unto God for holy service. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So it is a benefit of the atonement. Now, the importance of it. Go to Hebrews 12. <laughs> the importance of sanctification. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. says, follow peace with all and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now remember Jesus said in John chapter 3, except a man be born again of the water and the Spirit, he cannot what? See the kingdom of God. He cannot see it. Okay? One place he says you cannot enter into it. One place he says you cannot even see it. Okay? So you have to be born again of the water and the Spirit to see the kingdom of God. And then this verse says, without holiness, no man will see the Lord. So it's just as important to live pure, separated from the world, and dedicated to God. It's just as important to live holy as your new birth is. Okay? Now, the new birth or regeneration has to do with a family. Okay? You remember we talked about that being born again? Okay, that's a family word. Regeneration is a family word. Adoption, we talked about it last Sunday morning, is a family word. Okay, uh, pardon and justification is a courtroom word. But when you talk about consecration or holiness, that's a temple word and it's connected to a priesthood. Okay, so it's very important for us to understand that holiness is just as important as your new birth. Because without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. If you and I do not live separate from the filth and sin of this world and dedicated to the Lord, we will not see the Lord. Where? In this life or in the world to come. You will not experience eternal life without having holiness in your life. Does that make sense to you? So holiness, the importance of holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Okay, say praise the Lord. So it is very critical in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's go there. Just as important as your regeneration is holiness. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And the very God of peace, it says, sanctify you. Again, that is set apart. Sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Scriptures tell us in Hebrews 12 and verse 14, and in this verse, 1 Thessalonians 5 here in verse 23, how important holiness is is all right amen now again it's a temple term and it's related to priestly function in the bible in the old testament uh, we have words that are connected to holiness like separated the priests were separated the nazarites were separated 
from things that defile. And I'm just going to give you the verses without reading them to you. Numbers 1, 47 through 52. Numbers 18, 1 through 7. Numbers 6, 1 through 12. Hebrews 5, 1 through 5. So the priesthood in the Old Testament, again, connected to the temple, they were to be separated or holy, separated for ministry, separated for the service of the Lord. And we have examples of also Nazarites in the Old Testament. Now, when you looked at a priest in the Old Testament, the one thing that stood out about him was that he was separate. He was separate from all the rest of the Israelites. Now, the Bible says that God um, called the whole nation of Israel a holy nation, a royal priesthood, okay? But even though the whole nation was a set apart unto God, within that nation they were, there were separated people of a separated people. Those separated people of a separated people were known as priests. And when you looked at a priest, the one thing that stood out to you about that man was that he was set apart to do the service of God Almighty. You could look at his apparel, his outward appearance. The way he dressed told you, this man is set apart unto God because he dressed differently than even the rest of the nation. Uh, that was around him. And they had standards they had to live by as far as outward appearance. Okay? But when you saw the priest, the priest was screaming out and preaching by the way he dressed that he was set apart unto the Lord. His consecration, the way he looked, the way he talked, the things that he did in his life always said to everybody in that nation, I am dedicated to the Lord. I live a pure and separated life from things that are defiling me. And then the Nazarites. Especially in times when the nation of Israel was going downhill spiritually, you would see God raise up Nazarites in those times of decline. And uh, for example, in the judges, you know, Samson was a judge, but he was a Nazarite, took the Nazarite vow. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. He had the Nazarite vow on him. And so particular times in history in the nation of Israel when they had declined in what? In holiness. When they had declined spiritually in their walk with God, you would see a Nazarite standing on the corner. And that Nazarite, now for him, the, the marking distinction for him was his long hair. Now you say, but in the Bible, the Bible says a woman's supposed to have long hair and a man's not supposed to have long hair. Well, why would God tell a Nazarite to wear long hair? Because on the man, when the Nazarite wore long hair, it was a sign of weakness. When a woman has long hair, it's a sign of power or strength. Okay? So, when you saw that Nazarite had temporarily, temporary long hair, temporary long hair, and at the end of his Nazarite vow, he would cut that hair off and dedicate it to the Lord. So it was only a temporary thing with a Nazarite. But the whole point being is, in a time of spiritual decline in the kingdom of God, among the people of God, God would raise up these Nazarites that you could see standing on the street corner. And when you saw them 
that puts you under conviction because they were they were so dedicated and so set apart unto God they wouldn't even eat grapes okay I mean they were so consecrated to the Lord and everything they did they wouldn't even touch a dead person because it would defile them so they screamed out when you saw that Nazarite on the street corner you can look at two things Number one, you look at the decline of the church spiritually, that it's fallen away from its obedience to the Lord in its life. And then you can see that Nazareth is a demonstration and an example for the nation to consecrate themselves to the Lord. So the priest and the Nazarite in the Old Testament were people that when you looked at them, they said to the whole nation, Live holy unto the Lord. Alright? And so that first term is connected with separation. Then there's another term in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is dedication. We've already given you the word Hebrew word Kodesh. It means to separate, means to dedicate. So the priest would separate, the Nazarite would separate from what? That's the negative side. Separate from sin, defiling things, things that would take away their cleanness or their purity away. But dedication is the positive side. Dedication is dedicating yourself or giving yourself to the Lord. Okay, so we talk about holiness, we talk about separation. We're not just talking about separating ourselves from the world. We're talking about dedicating ourselves to God. Because if you separate yourself from the world based on rules, okay, then you really don't have dedication. You haven't fulfilled the word holiness. To walk in holiness before the Lord means to separate from the world, but to dedicate yourself to God. Okay? So the Hebrew word Kodesh means to dedicate. Uh, and that means to dedicate to what is pure and holy and clean. Number six, two through three. Next word. Purification. Purification, if you look at Exodus 28 through 29... Leviticus 8 through 9, when the priests entered into the priesthood, there was a purification ceremony that he went through. And there was, number one, the sprinkling of blood upon the priest. There was the washing of the priest. Now, what would happen was they would throw up a little booth and they would go and get water out of the laver and obviously that water is Jesus' name water because that rock that followed them through the wilderness was Christ and the water came out of the rock. So that's Jesus' name water typically in type. So they would pitch the little booth up. They would take that water out of the labor, which is Jesus' name water, and they would wash that priest from head to toe when he, they were being put into the priesthood. Now, afterwards, he would on a daily basis wash his hands and his feet at the labor. But when he's first washed, his whole body's washed. It's a picture of baptism in water in the name of Jesus. And then the cleansing of his hands and feet on a daily basis has to do with the cleansing of the, the Word, cleansing by the Word. Okay? So they would sprinkle blood on the priest. They would pitch the booth. They would wash him from head to toe. So water was applied to his life. And then they would anoint him with oil. And that was a part of that purification process. So we have blood, we have water, 
and we have oil that brought that man into the priesthood. Now, what brings us into the priesthood of God is the same thing. Blood, water, and spirit, oil. So, Acts 2.38 again. Repent, be baptized in water, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So you have in that verse, blood, water, and oil. So initially, we go through that purification process initially when we're baptized and filled with the Spirit of the living God. That's what puts us into the priesthood. Does everybody understand that? Okay. At that point, they are cleansed and purified to do the work of the Lord. And I gave you Acts 2.38, water, blood, and anointing comes upon us. Go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. First Corinthians 6, 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. Y'all know what these words mean, right? Okay. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind. The last two may need a little definition. Effeminate is a man who acts like a woman or dresses like a woman. Abusers of themselves with mankind is homosexuals. And a homosexual can be male or female. Okay, verse 10. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you're washed. Say washed. You're sanctified. But you are justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So you got washed water baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you received the Spirit of God. So where do we have? We have the blood, the water, and the oil. Just like the Old Testament priesthood. And that's when we enter into the priesthood at that time. Does everybody understand that? Okay? That separates us from all moral evil. The next word. Consecration. Exodus 29 and verse 9. The word consecration literally means to feel or to have your hands full. And so what the uh, priests would do, they would bring a ram. It's called the ram of consecration. And they would present the ram of consecration to the Lord. So it's, it's coming out of their hands. So the word consecrate means to feel the hands. It simply means that when the priest came before God, they didn't come empty-handed. They brought a sacrifice to the Lord. They brought an offering to the Lord. And uh, it was known as that consecration ram. Literally means to fill the hand. So the way I fulfill that is when I bring a sacrifice to the Lord, an offering to the Lord. Now one of it, one of those offerings is presenting my body. Okay? Romans chapter 12. Present your body a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. See, some people think holiness is not reasonable. The Bible says it's a reasonable thing. Present your body holy. Are you all with me? So we present it to the Lord. That means that we are not coming to the Lord empty-handed. When we come to church, we are presenting our body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is our reasonable service. So we come with our hands filled. We present our whole life to the Lord. Correct? Y'all understand that? 
So that's what the word consecration is. And we were never to be, never supposed to come into the presence of God empty-handed. The priest never came into the presence of God empty-handed. When you and I come to church, we must always have our hands filled. We must be presenting our body, our bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is our reasonable service. So we never have empty hands. We offer spiritual sacrifices. We offer praise and worship unto the Lord, the fruit of our lips. We bring our tithes and our offerings unto the Lord. So that word consecration means to have your hands filled. When you and I come before the Lord, we are to never have empty hands. We're always to bring something to the Lord by way of a spiritual sacrifice. You understand that? Okay. Exodus 29 verse 9, Hebrews uh, 13, 13 through 15. Hebrews 7 speaks of tithes and offerings. 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9. Um, and then, did I give you Romans 12? Yeah, I did. Romans 12, 1 and 2. So those verses are speaking about consecration. We are filling our hands and bringing it uh, ourselves to the Lord and our offerings unto Him. Okay? Amen. So those are the words that basically cover the, the teaching on holiness. Now, holiness is not eradication of the sin nature. When you and I got born again to the water and the Spirit, we received the nature of the Lord. There's two natures inside of us. It's that old evil fallen nature, that sin nature, that Adamic nature. It's inside of us at the same time that the new nature, the Spirit of God, is inside of us. So we still have that old nature. So holiness is not an eradication of that old sin nature. There's some churches out there and uh, some denominational systems and preachers that teach that when a person receives the Spirit of God and they get born again, that they, that old sin nature is eradicated out of their life that they no longer have that sin nature. That's not biblical. The Bible says if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. And that literally means that if we say we don't have a sin nature, uh, we, make, we make him, God, a liar. He says we do. We still have a sin nature inside of us. So we, our sin nature was not eradicated at our new birth. So holiness is not eradication. 1 Corinthians, let's go to 15. All right, verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15. But I, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortality must put on immortality. So there's going to come a time and that old sin nature will no longer be in us, and that's at the second coming of Jesus. All right, go to First John. Verse 8. If we say, First John 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. He's talking about the sin nature. Okay? If we confess our sins, that's the act of sin, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. His word is not in us. Do you believe that? Okay, 1 John chapter 1. Alright, so the Scripture is very clear that we don't have eradication of sin. We're still able to sin. Does that make sense to you? Before we were a believer, it was impossible for us to not sin. Before you were a believer, before you became a born-again believer, it was impossible for you to not sin. When you become a believer, it's possible for you not to sin. Okay? But it's also possible that you can sin. Alright? Once you get born again, uh, born again, you now have power to overcome sin. Once the Lord comes back at His second coming and we get a glorified body, at that point, we will not be able to sin. So we move as a non-believer from a place where we could, you know, it was absolutely impossible for us not to sin to a position now we're able not to sin, but capable of sin. And in the future, we'll move to a place where it will be impossible to sin. Okay, do you understand that? So we don't have eradication of the sin nature at the new birth. The next word. Holiness is not legalism. See, there's some people that point a finger at people who seek to live holy and churches that preach holiness. They point a finger at us and they say, y'all are into bondage. Y'all preach legalism. Well, I will just tell you right off that legalism is not holiness. So if I preach legalism to you or you are trying to live holy legalistically, then that's not holiness at all anyway. Okay? So let me explain to you again. When we preach holiness and we live holy, it's, it is not legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is trying to be saved by your own good works. Okay? Does that make sense to you? Trying to be saved by your own good works. Now, once you become a born-again believer, the salvation produces a lifestyle of holiness. Does that make sense? A lifestyle of good works. But we're not saved by our own good works. So legalism then is not holiness, and holiness is not legalism. Holiness, we've already defined to you what holiness is. Legalism, again, is somebody who tries to be saved by their own good works. Okay? You can read Galatians 3, 1 through 3 when you have time. Asceticism. Holiness is not asceticism. Now, asceticism is to punish the flesh. It's sometimes called penance. So, or self-crucifixion. It's like punishing or beating your flesh or, or making your flesh suffer, you know. Uh, that's called asceticism. That's not holiness. Asceticism doesn't produce holiness. When I try to punish myself, try to, you know, how can I explain to it? Inflict pain upon my, my, my life or my body, you know? Well, that, that's going to make me more holy if I inflict pain and suffering and agony and punishment on myself. No, that is not going to make you holy. 
but that, that thought of asceticism is that I can punish myself to the point that I will become holy. It'll never make you holy. That The monks tried that. They went through that process of asceticism. They go sit on a pole, you know, way up in the air and, and just live separate. And everybody walk by and look at, a, look at these monks sitting on the poles and, and they say, look, that's a holy man right up there. No, you're punishing your flesh, but that doesn't make you holy. And they would try to keep all their appetites, all their fleshly appetites, including sexual appetites. That's why they took the vow of celibacy. All these appetites under control and just punish themselves, you know, to make themselves holy. No, asceticism is not the punishment or penance. That is not holiness. Okay, so again, eradication, legalism, and asceticism, those things are not holiness. Okay. Now, holiness is instant and progressive. Two things, instant and progressive. At the time you become a born-again believer, you become holy. Now, what that means is, is that once you get water baptized and you're saying, filled with the Holy Ghost, the blood's been applied to your life, you've got the Spirit of God in you, the way that God looks at you positionally, He looks at you positionally as holy. Because to you and I is given the holiness of Jesus Christ Himself. So when you get born again of the water and the Spirit, when the Lord looks at you at that moment, He looks at you as being just as holy as Jesus Christ Himself. And it has to do with position. So we are instantly set apart from sin and dedicated to the Lord at the time of the regeneration. So when we talk about sanctification, it has a past, present, and future application. The past application of sanctification or holiness came instantly the moment I got born again. That's why if you look in the book of Corinthians, even though those believers, those Corinthian believers were very carnal, God called them saints. Because at the moment of their new birth, they were recognized by God as having the holiness of Jesus Christ. It was imputed to them. So it was instant. It was at the conversion when you became holy unto the Lord. Does that make sense? So it's instant and it's progressive. Now, Ephesians 1.4 says that it was before even the foundation of the world. And I, I'm not going to re-explain that to you because you understand that. All right. So we are reckoned as holy, uh, the holiness of Jesus Himself. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. Aren't you thankful to know that? That at the time you became a born-again believer, you were instantly made holy by the Lord. You received the very holiness of Jesus Christ Himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are what? Sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. The word to be is in the italics. It's not in the original. They are called saints with all in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So Paul is telling a very carnal church, very carnal, 
that they are called saints, that they're sanctified unto the Lord, and that was by their new birth. Obviously, as far as their lifestyle was concerned, they weren't very holy. But as far as their position is concerned, they were looked at as saints of God. Amen? Now sometimes saints don't act like saints, they act like ain'ts. And you look at him and say, man, you're not acting like a saint. You're acting like an ain't. You're acting like an unbeliever in your life. And that's possible. That a saint can act like an unbeliever in their life. At least temporarily. Can't go on forever and do that because you won't be a saint anymore. But as far as your position and my position in the Lord, it was instant at the time that I became a born-again believer. He saw me as a saint of God. Look at your brother and sister and say, you're a saint. Now call them saint and then their first name. Or saint and their last name. Now sometimes you don't act like a saint. Sometimes you don't feel like a saint. And I know because I pastor you. But you're a saint positionally at the time you became a born again believer. Amen. Alright. So Paul could even look at the Corinthian church as bad as they were. And say you're sanctified. You are called Saints, not to be, but called saints. It's not like, you know, after you die, then a church system canonizes you or, or declares you to be a saint because of the good works that were in your life. Amen? I'm glad to tell you today that when God looks at us, He calls us saints. At the moment you become a born-again believer, that's when you became a saint, not when you die. So praise the Lord. If you are a saint of God instantly, initially at your conversion, then what Paul wants the Corinthian believers to do is to live up to that. Live it out in your life. Okay? So in the past, you became saints instantly at the time of your new birth. You were looked at by God as having the holiness of Jesus Christ Himself. It was imputed to you. A benefit of the atonement. Isn't that beautiful? Okay. Now, we are in the process of being saved. It's progressive. So, back to Hebrews 12, verse 14 again. Progressive. Ongoing, the ongoing process Sanctification is an ongoing process. Aren't you thankful for that as well? God is in the process of working out His salvation in and through our life. All right. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So now Paul says to the Hebrew believers, follow peace and holiness. So now, we're not talking about our position in Christ, which came upon us at the time of our birth, new birth, but we're talking about the progressive aspect of sanctification, where we are commanded to be holy. Okay? Because we are holy, we're commanded to live that way. It is a progressive thing. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 18.
Okay, but grow in grace. Say grow in grace. And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So this, this word grow speaks to us then that we are in the process of being sanctified. Other scripture says, talks about us growing up in Him or into Him, which is the what? The head. That's one of my favorite verses. Growing up into or in Him, which is the head. So these words like growing up or grow are terms that speak of progressive, ongoing growth in the believer or sanctification. It's a process. We are being saved. You with me? Now, when we talk about being saved, we are being delivered from the what? The power of sin. When we are initially, instantly set apart unto God at new birth, where we receive the holiness of God through Jesus Christ, at that point we are delivered from the penalty of sin. Right now, in the present ongoing work of God in sanctification in our life, we are being delivered from the power of sin that's in us. When He comes back the second time, we will be delivered from the presence of sin. The old sin nature will be defeated in our life. So remember that. Delivered from the penalty of sin initially, progressively from the power of sin right now, and in the future, the presence of sin, that old sin nature. So sanctification is past, present, and then future. So we are being saved right now. And the final state is the state of sinless perfection where we no longer have sin in our life. And that's the second coming of Jesus. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2.12 Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my present only, presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, I thought we were already saved. We were. But remember, salvation is past, present, and future. So he says to work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. That's the progressive aspect of sanctification. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, so on and so forth. So we're working out our salvation right now, uh, but there's coming a time when we will be completely delivered from the sin nature. Okay, the final stage at the second coming of Jesus. Okay, God's work in us. Sanctification is God's work in us, number one. And number two, our response to that work. In the Bible, let's go over in the book of Jeremiah 23 and verse 6. Okay. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness or literally Yahweh M. Kadeshkim. You know, you may have heard of the term Yahweh M. Kadesh. Yahweh M. Kadesh. That literally means the Lord that sanctifies us. Right? So it, it, He is our righteousness. He sets us apart. It is a work of God that takes place in our life. Now, how does He do this? Well, He does it by the blood 
John 19, 33-34, He does it by the Word and our obedience to Him. Ephesians 5, 26, He does it by the Holy Ghost. It's the power of God in our life. 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 11. And obviously the Holy Ghost is called the Spirit of Holiness. So when you talk about God's work in us, then it's not so much a doctrine as it is a relationship. When I say He is Yahweh in Kiddush, I'm saying He is my righteousness. He is my sanctifier. So it's a relationship with God that we have. And He sets us apart by His blood, by His Word, by His Spirit, so on and so forth. But then you have the human response, Hebrews 12, verse 14. And the way we respond to this is we apply it by faith. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So I have to believe that I've been set apart. I have to believe that um, God has set me apart from evil, that I'm dedicated to Him, that's something He's done for me, and I do this by faith, correct? Okay, Romans 7, go there. And what that means is I have to reckon myself dead to sin. I have to believe that what the Word of God says about me, that I'm dead to sin, that I'm dedicated and set apart unto the Lord. Romans 7, we have a very interesting thing that is said. 7.24 Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of this death? Now stop there. Paul is talking about that old like dead body we carry around called the sin nature. And he pictures it like a Roman custom. In the culture of Rome in that day, they'd take a dead body and they'd strap the dead body to the back of a person. Okay? And you would see them walking around, walking in the streets. They'd be carrying dead bodies on their backs. They're literally chained to them. So they're, carrying, they're a living person carrying a dead person. And, uh, and so as they walked around with these dead, dead persons on their body, then the dead person would slowly begin to corrupt and decay, and that corrupting, decaying body would begin to eat into the living person's body. Okay? And if that person did not get delivered from that dead body, eventually they would die. Because the corruption and the death of that dead body would slowly eat away at their life. Now, here's what's interesting. They could not get rid of that dead body. They couldn't loose themselves from that dead body. There was no way that they could release themselves from carrying that dead body around. Somebody else had to come along and release the dead body off of them. Somebody else had to do it for them. The point being is this, is that we carrying a dead man around in, in us, and that's that old sin nature. We're carrying it around with us every day we live. And every day we live, that old dead man is eating away, or trying to eat away at the life that's in us. Correct? But the good news is this, is that somebody has come and released us, has released that old dead body uh, from our life. That means we don't have to walk in the power of that old sin nature anymore. We have been released from that dead body, that, that old sin nature, by Jesus Christ. But you have to believe that. 
by faith. You have to reckon it by faith that I'm dead to sin. Amen? I don't, I'm not, you know, look at what he says in verse 20, 25. Who's going to deliver him from that old dead body that he's talking about? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So he says, I thank God. God's the one who gives us the victory over that old sin nature. But we have to believe that by faith. Back up to Romans chapter 6. Verse 6, Knowing this, that our old man is what? Crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So you have to reckon yourself dead to sin. You have to reckon yourself free from the body of death. You have to believe the old man, amen, has been basically taken out or delivered. We've got, it's not eradication, but we have victory over the old man. We no longer serve sin. Okay? And so we say his word is true. Does that make sense to you? All right, so this is what God does for us. He comes and releases us from the power of sin, but we have to, by faith, reckon ourselves dead to sin, that we don't have to live in that bondage any longer. Okay. From our perspective, our response to Yahweh M. Kadesh is that we obey His Word. Let's go to Acts 5.32. Our response to His work in us and what He's done for us is the response of obedience. Acts 5.32 And we are witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey Him. Now, so we have a response to what God has done in our life, the new birth. Our response to Him is to live obedient to His Word. And the Bible tells us He gives us the Spirit to those that obey Him. Now, how does this work? Okay, God's work in us. But the way He works in us is by our obedience to His Word. As long as we are obedient to the Word of the Lord and we are living holy, then He's the one that comes and gives us victory over sin. As long as we are obedient to His Word, He gives us power over sin by His blood and, his, and by His Spirit, and His blood keeps on cleansing us. But if ever we stop obeying Him, then the power of His Spirit and His blood eventually will stop working in us. Does that make sense? Okay. Wow. Praise the Lord. Now, moving from there, a word perfection. Uh, I think I'm going to just kind of hold on to that and go on a little bit further into holiness here with you. I'm going to move from holiness to perfection in just a moment. While I'm in the process of teaching holiness, i got a question for you. How many of y'all believe that you can live perfect? Don't lift your hand. Don't, don't respond to that. How many of y'all believe that you can be perfect in this life? Okay. Some of you may be surprised. Alright, but before we get into perfection and glorification, which is also benefits of, of, of the atonement, holiness, let me go through some verses again. It says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, 
Be ye holy for what? I am holy. So be ye. That's that progressive holiness. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Remember it's a temple word? So your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. So glorify God. 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17 Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. James, or John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. He will come unto him, and, make, and we will make our abode with... Let me read that again. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Now, what I'm doing is I'm reading when I used to teach the New Life class, which Jonathan Lemons teaches now, I took the time to type every verse of Scripture that was in the manual that he, that he uses to teach with out on a piece of paper so that I could teach the new, new converts a lot more efficiently and a lot more better. So that's what I'm reading from right now is a lot of these typed out verses that I used to teach in that class, okay? So anyway, and then Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be what? Holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Amos 3, verse 3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? The answer is no. All right? Now... Holiness, again, in the area of process or progressive holiness, there is a continual search for sin. A continual search for sin in your and my life. The example of that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the Old Testament. What they would do is they would go throughout their house, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they would get rid of any leaven that was in their house. They would start with the big pieces of bread. Okay? Because the big pieces of bread, you know, obvious, they're out front. They can be seen. Get rid of the big pieces of bread first because it has a lot of leaven in it. So they would go through their house and they get rid of the big pieces of bread with leaven in it. And then they would keep going through their house and they would find the smaller pieces of bread that had leaven in it. Anything that had leaven in it, they got rid of their, out of their house during the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the point that they would take a candle, they would light the candle, and they would search even in the corners for even a little small piece of unleavened bread. If they saw a mouse running across their house with a piece of unleavened bread in their house, in, their, in its mouth, and it goes into a hole in the wall, they felt like the curse of God would come upon their home because that little piece of unleavened bread was still in their home. So they searched with candles to make sure that there was absolutely no leaven in their house. Okay? Now, 
The Passover is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross for us. Unleavened bread has to do with the burial of His body. Amen. They took the body, put it in the sepulcher. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Obviously, on the third day, He rose again. That's the first fruits. My point is this, is that when you and I identify with His death, burial, and resurrection in water baptism, then that feast called unleavened bread is applied to our lives or it's fulfilled. When you get baptized in water in the name of Jesus, obviously your sins are remitted, washed away, the leaven's gone, correct? Okay. But after that, for the rest of your life and the rest of my life, I will be searching my house to make sure there's absolutely no leaven of sin in it at all. And, and obviously, once you became a born-again believer, things that, that left your life, it was the big stuff, what we call big sin. You know, if you were a smoker, you stopped smoking. If you were uh, a partier, you drank, you stopped drinking. Amen? If you were a liar, you stopped lying. That's the big stuff. I know when I got born again, those are the, some of the first things that left my life was the cussing. Amen? God don't want cussing saints. The first thing that left my life was cuss words. Hallelujah? And, and I, that, the power of God still works in my life right now. It keeps me, keeps my, my tongue pure. That's one of, one of the things that I knew when I got born again. One of the things that I knew uh, that, that was proof that I got born again is I didn't have problems with my tongue cussing anymore. Amen? And I, there was a time in my life, and I'm honest before you, church, there was a time in my life I could stand before this church and tell you there were years that went by in my life I never even had a slip of my tongue. Years in my life never used a word, a profane word. Years in my life. And, and honestly, I don't know when the last time I ever used one. Maybe, you know, something happened and it slipped out of my mouth. But I don't even remember, and I'm sure there's been a few times when it slipped out of my mouth, a bad word. But I'm being honest with you today, church. I don't even remember the last time I ever used a bad word come out of my mouth. And I would say from the time I got converted 30-something years ago to this point right now, there's been very few times, and I'm not going to tell you how many times, but very few times I've ever used a cuss word. Those things are the first things that went in my life. The cussing, the drinking, the partying. That, that all left, praise God. Amen? And, and so now, as a believer, you and I are in the process, you know, the big stuff may be gone out of our life, but we are responsible before God to make sure that our houses are clean, our temples are clean and pure and dedicated and holy unto the Lord, so that we're literally taking the Word of God, the light of God's Word, and we're searching in our, in our homes, in our lives, for every bit of sin that might be there. And it's a continual, ongoing process until Jesus Christ comes back that we are removing every bit of the sin, every bad words, every bad thoughts, every bad actions out of our life. And we are to never give ourselves an excuse for bad words, bad thoughts, and bad actions. So we have to continually, like they did in that Feast of Unleavened Bread, continually take the light of God's Word by the light of His Spirit and He shows us in our life, you need to get rid of that. You need to get rid of this. That's sin. That's defiling you. Now that's, let me put it to you this way, that's normal Christianity. 
The Christianity that's preached from the pulpits today and the Christianity of most denominational systems today, that's not... I will say, first of all, it's not true Christianity anyway. But if you are a true believer this morning, you are going to continually, and I'm going to continually search in my life for every piece of leaven that's there. Every attitude, every sin of the spirit, every sin of the soul, every sin of the body, everything. I must search until I get it all out. Amen. So, holiness is a process a continual searching for sin. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. He says, your glorying is not good. The Corinthians were gloating. You know? There was sin in the church. There, there was um, incest in the church. Incest in the church. And they were gloating. They were full of pride. They were walking around. You know, like some churches today, well, we're a church of grace. And, and what they mean by that is, well, we're a church of grace and we let people live in their sin. They can live in adultery, fornication. They, they can be living that way and still go to church because it's a church of grace. And so they walk around, we're gloating and real arrogant about how grace their church is a church of grace. That's pride, church. It's pride. And Paul corrected the church of Corinth because there was incest right in that church where they were walking around gloating and prideful in the sense that we are not going to, you know, judge this man. And Paul gets on their case for that arrogant position of not dealing with the sin that was in that church. And he, and he tells them, here's, here's what he says, you know. I'll read it to you again. Your glorying is not good. You're walking around glorying like, well, see, we're, we're, we're the church of grace. You know, we, we're not going to deal with sin in our church. And so they were glorying in that. Like so many churches today, glory in the fact that they don't call people to live a holy life. They glory in the fact that they don't have a standard. They glory in the fact that people can come to their church and continue to live the way they want to and live in sin, their glorying is not good. Because if you're a true believer and you're a true Christian, you're going to have a lifestyle that's a continual search for sin. Amen? So Paul says, your glory is not good. Know ye that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump? He says in verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And if you look at that whole chapter, he's talking about the sin that was in that church called the sin of incest. He told them to get rid of it, to get it out of the church. And they did. And they did. They got rid of that, that sin out of the church. Hallelujah. Praise God. So, it's important that we deal with sin. And as a pastor of a church, it's important for me, you know, I think some people don't understand. They don't understand me because they don't understand holiness. It is my responsibility as a pastor of this church to make sure this church stays clean. In the sense that, obviously, I can't clean you. 
But in the sense that I preach the Word of God, and if there's sin in the church, it must be dealt with, and it must be removed out of the house. And it must be removed out of my own individual home, and out of your own individual home, and out of your own life. So Paul, he rebuked their pride and their arrogance, their glory. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a lot of people in hell that went to church every day. Every service, that every time the church was open, every service, every week, they were in church, but they are going to be in hell. Because they didn't get rid of the leaven out of their life. Now you can sit there and you can ignore me all you want to, but I'm telling you the truth. And if there's sin in my life and there's sin in your life, and I'm not talking about the big ones. I mean, incest obviously is a big one. But sometimes I think we as an apostolic Pentecostal people of God, once we get delivered of the big ones, then we give ourselves license to have the little ones like attitudes, rebellion against the pastor. Attitudes, spirits. Okay? And, and, and so I'm just telling you today, church, that we have to purge out the leaven. Not only the big leaven, but all the little leaven that's in our life. Amen? Say praise the Lord. So, it's a continual search for sin. Matthew 1.21, the Bible says when Jesus comes into the world, He will save His people from their sins. Not in their sin. He didn't come so I could get born again and I can continue to live in sin. He came to save me from my sin. And save you from your sin. And I'm not getting a lot of amens, but that's still the truth. Amen. When you get filled with the Spirit of God, how many of y'all notice a change in your life? And I'm not asking you to lift your hand, but you noticed a change in your life that what you used to love, you now hate. You used to love sin. But once you became a born-again believer, now you hate sin. You have a righteous, holy indignation against the sin that's in your life or anything that would, would be in opposition to God because you have been changed. What you once loved, now you hate. What you once hated, now you love. You love the things of God. And I will tell you today, church, by the Word of the Lord, if you don't hate sin, you're not a believer. You're not a believer. And I'm not talking about big sin. I'm talking about the little sins in the church and the little sins that are in your life. If you don't hate that, you're not a believer. You can't be. Because a believer will hate sin and love God. A believer hates what they once loved, the world, and love what they once hated, God. Amen. Matthew 5.48, we'll come back to this. The Lord says, Be ye perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. He commands us to be perfect. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all what? Filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And I'll talk about perfection in just a moment. Now, the whole Romans chapter 6 deals with after you become a born-again believer, 
we should not continue in sin. You should not continue in sin once you become a born again believer. Romans chapter 6. And I had, uh, years ago, when I was pastoring in Crane, I had a man who was, at that time, um, the superintendent of the Texaco district in the um, denominational system that I was a part of at that time. Not a presbyter of, of just a section, but I mean, he was the superintendent over the whole Texaco district. And when I was in Crane over there, he asked me the question about holiness. And I said, it's very clear. The book of Romans teaches you. In the first chapter of the book of Romans teaches you how you became a believer. And then the chapters that follow teach you how to live once you become a believer. I said, it's practical. Once you become a believer, how you became a, a, a believer is by regeneration, correct? But now the results of that is going to be seen in the way you live and the way you obey God. And that's the way the book of Romans is laid out. That's the way the New Testament epistles are written out. It teaches you about your salvation, how you got saved, and what is the results of that salvation? A holy life that's dedicated and lived for the glory of God. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a benefit. So we go on and we are perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And then you can read Romans chapter 6 in your time. Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son a likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Okay? When you have time, read 1 John 1, 5 through 10. The Apostle John deals with sin. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. So not only is there a continual searching for sin in my life, but then Paul in Hebrews chapter 12 talks about weights. They, they may not even be defined biblically as a sin, but they're weights. They're slowing our walk down. They're slowing our walk with God down. Ask you a question today. How many of y'all are doing real well in your walk with God? Don't lift your hand. How many of y'all are doing real well in your walk with God this morning as you sit there in the church? How many of you today are doing better right now than you were a year ago? You say, well, Pastor, I don't know of any sin in my life, but is there something in your life that's hindering you? It's weighing you down. It's called the weight in the Bible. There's some things that are that are not maybe sin, but they're weights. They're they're hindering our walk with God and our relationship with God. And I feel in my spirit as I preach, I can I'm discerning that some of you're concerned about your walk with God, and that's good. It's good that you're concerned right now. It's good that you saw that the Israelites went and searched for leaven with a candle. Praise the Lord. Amen. Brother Mark, do me a favor, please, and go get anybody and everybody that's in the back and bring them back in here. This is too important for them to miss. A continual search for sin in our life. And any weight, any weight that's slowing us down, he tells us here in Hebrews 
Seeing we also are compassed about with so great a crowd of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the races that, it, that is set before us. How many know sin and weights as the Bible says right here? It says does so easily beset us. That's the truth, is it not? That, that, that you know, it's not hard for us it's not hard for us to sin. It's amazing how born-again believers can move in the carnal so quickly. Have you ever been, have you ever noticed in your life how quick and how easy it is for you and I to be carnal? I mean, it's, it's not a hard thing to sin. It's an easy thing to sin. It, it doth so easily beset us. Amen. Praise God. It, the battle, the struggle is, is living a holy life and overcoming that sinful nature that's in us. Do, you, do y'all believe that? How many are like, like myself? It, it's easy to sin. It is. It's, it's easy to trip up. It's easy to fall. It's easy to falter. Hallelujah. And that's what Paul is saying. And we've got to lay aside those weights. We've got to lay aside that sin that does so easily beset us. It gets us off track. Hinders our walk with God. And nobody in this church, including your pastor, has a glorified body yet. And it's, it's easy for you and it's easy for me to trip up. It is. And that's what Paul's talking about. So we got to get rid of not just the sin that's in our life, but we got to get weights out of our life. What's slowing us down in our relationship with Jesus Christ? Amen. When we live a holy life, practical holiness affects these areas in our life. Holiness affects, number one, our conversation. Our conversation practically. You know, how many of y'all, y'all can lift your hand on this one because I can lift my hand on it too. Before you became a born again believer, you, your mouth was a cesspool. I mean, every, maybe every other word that came out of your mouth was the name of the Lord in vain or, you know, using, using just. Praise God. And, and if you, if you didn't say it with the full force, you would say, you know, words. And now I use this in the context of teaching. You would use the words like gosh. Well, gosh is God and another word, S-H, put together. And you didn't realize it. And you would say gosh, and then you would say dang. Well, that's just slang for saying, you know, a more a stronger word. You know, I, I you know where my my struggle was, gee. Jeez, I can't. One one guy used to be in our church. He'd always walk around and say, "Geez, Louise, geez, Louise." Well, geez is a is using Jesus profanely. You say, "Gee," or "Geez," that's the name of Jesus profanely. You know, so I'm just telling you. And then you get born again, all of a sudden, you notice you don't talk the same way you used to talk. Hallelujah. And if you do, there's something wrong. 
because the Bible tells us that, that it, separation will affect our conversation. Second Peter 3, verse 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, and what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy, holy conversation and godliness. God says this whole world that you look at, this physical world is going to burn up someday. And because you know and I know that everything we can see with our eyes, as Paul says, is temporary. If you can see it with your eyes, church, it's temporary. If it's eternal, it's invisible. But if you can see it with your eyes, it's temporary. And this temporary world and everything in it, church, is going to burn. Everything. He says, because we know that, this, everything's going to burn up. We, it, it should cause us to live a godly and holy life. Praise God. I believe the Word. And he, said, he talks about conversation. It affects your conversation. Right? What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation? And godliness. The lifestyle of godliness. Telling, telling everybody in the world, that we believe this thing's going to burn up someday. The way we talk is telling people everywhere that we believe this thing's going to burn up someday. In fact, you know what used to really get me when Jesus said it in the Gospels? He said, every idle word that a man speaketh, he shall give an account on that day. He'll give an account for every idle word. You and I will give an account for every idle word in that day on Judgment Day. Every idle word. Every empty, vain word. Oh, then I better watch what I say. If when I stand before God, every idle word that I say, I'm going to have to give an account for that. And it obviously is not just talking about cuss words. It's not just talking about profanity. Every idle word that you speak, everything that is against the Word of God, against the Bible, against the church, against the things of God, every idle word that you say in life, empty talk, just empty talking. Sometimes we talk so much, hallelujah, and I love you, and, but I, and I put myself in, we, we talk so much trash. Just talk and talk and talk and talk. It doesn't mean nothing just to talk all the time. Hallelujah. Well, we know someday we stand before God. Every idle word, we're going to be judged for every idle word. And here we are just talking and talking and don't even know what we're saying, not even thinking about what we're saying. We just like to talk, 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 talk. Every idle word. Gossip. Every idle word. Slander. Every idle word. And when you as a believer understand that even your conversation, even the words that come out of our mouth, every idle word, we're going to have to give account before God someday. That will change the way you talk. You won't be talking all the time. You're for sure not going to gossip. You're for sure not going to slander. You're not going to do it. You're not going to mock. Every idle word. That one got me. When Jesus said that, 
I said, I better be careful with what I say. Well, nobody sees me. He does. Nobody heard my conversation on the telephone. He did. You thought nobody heard you when you were sitting at that table and you were talking to your husband. You were gossiping. You, you as a husband talking to your wife. You thought nobody heard it. He heard it. And on judgment day, it's all going to come out. That doesn't mean you won't be saved. That doesn't mean you won't be in heaven. What it's saying to you is it's going to come out where everybody can see it. You know? I was watching the History Channel the other day and they're talking about the universe and, you know, when our communication that goes out in space. You know, those words just keep traveling and traveling and traveling and traveling. They just keep on going. And they say at some point, eventually, now this is their concept, at some point, those words get all, you know, dissolved or absorbed in, in what goes on in space. But according to the Word of the Lord, they live on and on and on. They're recorded. They're recorded. When the, when the astronauts went out into space, they picked up radio signals while they were out in outer space that happened years and years in the past. So the words that I say and the words that you say are going on. They're living on and on and on and they're not dying. If there were aliens, can you imagine some of us are driving them crazy? With all the chatter? And, and some of them are high-ranking officials United States of America. Now, obviously, I don't believe in aliens. I believe in demon spirits and angels and things like that. But anyway, but I'm just telling you, if there were aliens, what in the world would they think of you? If they, if they listened into your conversation in one day, you'd probably drive them crazy. They, they'd probably back their spaceship up their saucer and fly the other way. And you know, they were talking they were talking about some of the things we've tried to do. You know, we've sent out messages and and things into space and pictures of our of our you know, pictures of our human bodies, a picture of the anatomy of a man and the picture of the anatomy of a woman and and sending it out there for aliens to come and this is what we look like. And, 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 and you know, communication, right? And I'm serious. And, and, and one of the scientists was talking about it. You know, we probably need to be more careful with what kind of communication we're giving the aliens. I think he's probably right. You believe in aliens. Amen. But we need to understand that when we live for the Lord, it's going to affect what we, what we say. We know our words live on and on and on. Would I want, if the judgment day took place right now, would I want my words to be heard by you? Would you want your words to be heard? Every idle word. We better be careful with what we say.
it affects your conversation. Obviously, that word conversation in Peter is more than just talk, but it includes it. Say praise the Lord. Philippians 1.27, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let it be that which becometh the gospel of Christ. Amen. Paul says somewhere, and I don't have it typed out here, Paul says it somewhere. He said, when he speaks, let it be as of the oracles of God. The oracles of God is his word. James 1.26, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. You and I cannot control our tongue, man or woman. Your religion is empty. Proverbs 26, 20, Where no wood is, there the fire goeth out, so where there is no tail-bearer, the strife ceases. Somebody say, Amen. The Bible's very clear about what we talk about. Reading material, it affects separation effects, not only your conversation, but it affects your reading material. Isaiah 33, 15 through 16. Let's go there real quick. And I'll, give, I'll write, you know, write these other ones down. Psalm 1, 2. Psalm 101, 3. But Isaiah 53. Am I boring you? This is practical holiness. This is what I used to teach new converts years ago before I ever started pastoring. I like practical holiness. Isaiah 33, 15. He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly. He that despiseth the gain of oppression, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. He shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him. His water shall be sure. He shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. It'll affect your the, the things that you read, the things that you see, the things that you watch. It affects us. Amen. I was watching a show last night on the History Channel, and it was good to a point. It was okay to a point. I say not good, not. It was good to a point. It was historical, pretty good movie. And then all of a sudden, man, it started flashing, you know, nudity here and things like that. And I had to change the channel. I had to go. I had to go watch something else. And he was on the History Channel. You know. Well, you you know you and I. We have to be careful with what we're looking at with our eyes. What we read. What are you looking at? It, it's important. Job. We studied Job not long ago, a couple of weeks ago. About Job said he want, He said I'm not even going to look upon a maid. Now, that doesn't mean he said he stopped having natural attraction. Don't misunderstand that. He's talking about himself, giving himself to, to looking upon a woman in, in an improper way. Does that make sense? Not natural attraction. But when you walk with God, God will take control of your eyes. See, He takes control of your mouth, your tongue. He takes control of what you see with your eyes. Amen. 
How many of you and I, are we clean today in this? Are we pure in this? Are we separated today from these things? You go, go to a movie. You know, talking about conversation, go to a movie and somebody uses the name of the Lord in the vein. In vain, let me say this to you. You must get up at that moment and leave. You, you can't just sit there and keep letting them use the name of the Lord in vain. It, it bothers you. It should bother you. I, at the gym the other day, this guy, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I left one gym and went to another gym. It cost me a little more monthly to do it because I tried to escape all the trash and profanity that was coming out of those people's mouths. And I go over to this gym and all of a sudden I look up and those same kind of people that used to go to that gym, now they're over here. A handful of them. They're using the name of the Lord in vain. You know, you can you know what kind of people they are. They tagged all over. And I'm not talking about pre-Christianity. They're still not Christians. And they're just using the name of the Lord in vain and all this stuff. And I'm just looking at them. And I'm telling you, friend, I'm real close. I'm, I'm, I'm making a decision either to go, and I will, I have no problem. And go and confront them and tell them, you're not supposed to be using language like that in here. I had to make a decision, okay? I, do I do this myself or do I go to the management and tell the management? What do I do? I just bowed my head and I started praying. I said, Lord, I pray in your name that your spirit would defeat the enemy that speaks through the mouth of that person. And, and they may show back up Monday, I don't know, but after I prayed that prayer, they weren't in the gym the next day. And they're there every day. But I'm just telling you, friend, you, you, you should not get comfortable with language like that around you. If you don't just come out right at, right at, at them and tell them right off, pray first. And after you pray, if it keeps on going on, then you're going to have to say something. But we're talking about your what you see with your eyes. You go into the movies and you you know you hear profane words like that. Use the name of the Lord in vain. You got to get up and leave. Watch stuff with your eyes, impure, unholy things, ungodly things. You can't do that. You can't do that. It's happened to me just like it's happened to you. I've been sitting there watching something and it goes just put right on you. Amen. Now, if I, if I was honest with you, and I'm going to be, you're honest with me, and you're honest with God, you'd say, and I would say, we knew it was coming anyway. Because you get a feel in the Spirit. You get a feel in your spirit. The Lord says, you better change it right now. It's fixing to come. God will tell you. You know. But that temptation is so hard. It's hard to overcome. Amen. And it might be a child, a children's film, so called. But, but the whole point is, is that you and I have to be careful with what we see with our eyes. How we talk and then what we listen to. It will affect this church. These. These eyes, these ears, this mouth, these things, listen to me, there are gateways into the soul. When you let this stuff come into your eyes and into your ears, it's going into your soul. And it'll affect your spirit. 
We're not, we're not Nicolaitans which taught that you could sin in the flesh and it not affect your spirit. What you see, what I see, what I hear, what I say affects. These are the gateways into the soul. It will affect our walk with God. Reading material, Isaiah 33, 15 through 16, Psalm 1, 2, Psalm 101, verse 3. I don't think any, any male in here has this problem, but some of you ladies, maybe you like to read those old romance novels. You read those romance novels and you dream about the one you're reading about. You're not dreaming about your husband. You watch as the world turns are the days of our lives. <laughs> All day long, you're in your dream world, man. And then he comes home and you go, oh. and back to the days of our lives you go and as the world turns the next day and all have to be careful we have to we have to govern this and then there's thoughts and actions separation affects your thoughts and actions let all bitterness and wrath all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice amen looking diligently lest any man fail the grace of God lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled by the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace long suffering gentleness goodness faith faith, meekness, temperance against such there is no law. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not your liberty for the occasion of the flesh, but, but by love serve one another. Our thoughts and actions, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. All these things have to be put out of our life. They will defile us. Our thought life. How you thinking? God cares about the way I think. We're not supposed to just let our minds, you know, just think whatever we want to think. There's a difference between thoughts of evil and evil thoughts. Thoughts of evil is like a bird flying over your head. Let it keep flying. Everybody here has thoughts of evil. Anybody here said, I never had a thought of evil? You're lying too. Thoughts of evil. They're like a bird flying. They come in. Where would that come from? Flies in. Don't let it build a nest. Let it keep flying. Thoughts of evil. Because if you don't let the bird fly over your head, it'll build a nest in your hair. And then it'll become an evil thought. Everybody's going to have thoughts of evil, but just let it keep flying. Amen? Say praise the Lord, church. Thoughts of evil. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. Don't let it build an nest of it. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. And then you produce a movie. You know. You're the writer and the producer. And you control what's going on in the movie. And how it turns out. And you got to let it go. I do too. 
I have thoughts of evil come flying. Hallelujah. Just, just let them keep flying. Because if you don't, they'll become evil thoughts. Um, separation affects your recreation and pleasure. Love not the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. You adulterers and adulteresses. How would you like to have a pastor like Jane? You adulterers and adulteresses. Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Just being a friend of the world makes you an enemy of God. Now, hear me, church. You know, when I first got in the church, I, I, one thing I think that I struggled with getting the victory over and overcoming was rock and roll music. Okay? I loved it. I loved it. it, it I would say it was probably my God. I loved it. I spent $1,200 and I was... Only a teenager spent $1,200. That's a long time ago. $1,200 is probably like 12000 now. <laughs> Maybe not quite that much. But I spent $1,200 on a stereo system for my Trans Am. And I put tweeters right up in the corner. So when I turned that thing, that Rockford Fosgate, that 100-watt Rockford Fosgate up, it, it almost pierced your ears. It was so loud. You know. Well, it, it wasn't like what they have today. They got a boom, boom. You don't even know what music is. What I played, they were. <laughs> that's music. Jam that thing up, you know, and I got, I like the Rocker Fosgate because there was less distortion in those amps. My friend went and bought, he spent all kinds of money on his stereo. He went and did a, compar did a comparison with my stereo and his, and he started feeling real bad because he spent all this money, but mine sounded better than his did. But I played that stuff so loud, man, it'd make your ears hurt real bad, you know. But I love rock and roll music. I had a hard time with it. And you know, I always had this, and some of y'all probably used this before. Well, it doesn't say in the Bible, thou shalt not listen to rock and roll music. That's what I do. I say, that's, the Bible doesn't tell me I can't listen to rock and roll music. There's no verse in there that says thou shalt not listen to rock and roll music. But then the Holy Ghost said, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of Christ. That was his response to my, my philosophy. Whew, man, when I heard that, I said, I don't want to be your enemy, Lord. I called up the Lord, local Christian radio station and he told me come down I'll show you some good music he, he showed me uh, David and the Giants we've had David come play David and the Giants one God Jesus name Holy Ghost man David and the Giants got that well, that's good I used to listen to Daniel's band hallelujah the Daniel's band or resurrection band and I know y'all listen to those on a regular basis don't y'all listen to Daniel's band resurrection band no you Dan, David and the giant, yeah. But, you know, you get tired of David after a while. You've got to have a little more than just David. So, you know, they, I don't even know if you can get resurrection band anymore. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
praise God. And I, all, and I made that decision based on that verse right there. If I'm a friend of the world, I'm an enemy of Christ. Not based on the Bible saying rock and roll music is, is of the devil. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of Christ. And we'd drive down, and I was still in those days still driving the drag, you know, cruising the drag with my friends. And we were playing Resurrection Band, Daniel's Band, David and the Giants Band, Hunter Watts and Rock. Some people out there say, what in the world is that? That's some good stuff. I say, Resurrection Band. David and the Giants. Who? Huh? We had a really good time with that. And I remember one time we was over here. Uh, we were parked right in front, right on the side of a, a, a Pentecostal church. I wasn't the pastor of the church. Me and my friend sitting there, right there in the church parking lot, cranking it up, boy. These old women walk out. God bless their hearts. Bless their souls. Looking at us, you know. I guess it offended them. I don't know, man. I started asking, you want some? I guess they're going to give you a copy of the tape. I had an attitude too. I still had it. Maybe still have a little bit of an attitude too, you know. Praise the Lord. Now, God bless them. They're precious saints of God. They're precious holy people of God. I mean, they had hair stacked on top of their head 10 feet high. And, and, and I'm not putting that down. That looks great, I think. I like it when y'all do that. That's hallelujah, whoever. But. You know what I mean? But there's just some things in the, that are not in the Bible. You know, this, you can't do that. Or you're a friend of the world. If you are, you're an enemy of Christ. Praise the Lord. May the Lord forgive me for that. Well, hallelujah. So we have to be careful with our recreation and our pleasure, do we not? Friendship of the world is to be an enemy of Christ. Talking about Moses, Hebrews 11, 25 and 26, choosing rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the approach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of reward. Moses could make, a, he made a choice. He could be the next Pharaoh of Egypt. He said, I'd rather have Jesus. Yes. And the final area I, I will bring to you on, on practical holiness is it will affect your appearance. Okay, so we've talked about it. It affects our conversation, our reading material, our thoughts and actions, the recreation of pleasure, our appearance. Real quick. First Peter chapter 3. Let's go there. So I don't have that one. It affects our appearance. Let us not focus on just appearance, though. Let us focus on the other ones that we taught you. First Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Obviously, I can't teach you the whole, everything there is to know about practical holiness, but I'm going to do my best to teach you where it would help you. First, Timothy, uh, First Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Here we go. You ready? Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. Number one, this is your outward appearance. 
it says, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair. The word plating the hair means you are intertwining all kinds of ribbons, jewels, anything that embellishes the hair makes it exaggerated. The plating of the hair is not just a simple braid. It's not a simple braid. It is the intertwining, the elaborate intertwining and the exaggerating of the hair he's talking about. Alright, let it not be that. And of wearing of gold. Okay, so now this moves into the area of jewelry. Wearing of gold. Walking around and got gold jewelry all over you. He said, let it not be. Okay. Wearing of gold. Or of putting on apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. And he's talking to the women here in this particular context. In that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the spirit of God of great price. Say praise the Lord. He said, what you should put on is that meek and quiet spirit, sisters. Amen. And, and, and then maybe the aliens will. I like that. Be relieved. Hallelujah. I know us men would. Us men would. Oh, y'all don't look at me like that. There's some there's some men that can talk too, you know. Yeah. <laughs> For after this manner, in old time the holy women also, say holy women who also trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. You know what he's basically saying right there? Don't, don't get jealous or don't... Um, he's basically saying this amazement that comes on some sisters in the Lord is they look at these women in the world and they're dressing immodestly. And they got, you know, all kinds of stuff on their face. And you understand what I'm saying? Immodest apparel. And here is the woman of God in the church trying to live for the Lord holy, not wearing a bunch of jewelry and not, not, you know, exaggerating the hair and everything. And, and if they're not careful, sometimes the woman or the sister in the church feels like they're in competition with the woman in the world. And Peter says, don't do that. Don't fear with any amazement. Okay. Amen? Does that make sense to you? Okay. Sure is quiet in here. 1 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Let's go there real fast. I'm going to have to move real quick now from here. But 1 Timothy 2, 8. Verse 8 talks to the men. And then verse 9 speaks to the women. 1 Timothy 2.8 Y'all doing okay up there? I will therefore that men pray everywhere lifting up what? Holy hands 
without wrath and doubting. This is an area that the man has to overcome in the area of holiness is he gets so full of wrath and he's angry, he's mad at everything, mad at life, you know, mad, just angry, just got an angry spirit and just full of doubt. And then he comes and tries to pray and that anger and that doubt's hindering his prayer life. So for the man, we have to overcome anger, anger issues, and doubt. For the woman, verse 9, in like manner also, women adorn themselves in, say, modest. The word modest means this. It means orderly. It means proper. It means decent. Okay? Modesty. Immodesty would then what? If, if modesty is proper, in order, and decent. And what is immodesty? Immodesty then would be something that shows the figure. Okay? Or it exposes the body. So God is calling, calling a woman to be modest. So cover her body. Amen? Praise the Lord. And I'm not saying, you know, you, come on, practical. I'm not saying walk around with a with a sheet, you know, cut it cut at the hole, and a sheet, you know, long flowing sheet, so we don't even, you know. But but you know when you're you're wearing something real skin tight or or something that's obviously uncovering your body, you know that. Even people in in the workplace, women will tell women, "Don't come up here showing stuff." And they're not even in the church. Amen? Okay. So, so to the women in the church, it's going to affect your appearance. You're not going to walk around exposing your body. You're not going to walk around. Your skirt's not going to be too short. Your, your top's not going to go uh, where we can see. Amen? You're not going to wear real, real tight, tight stuff that leaves nothing to the imagination. Hallelujah, church. This is in the Bible. Now, I'm sure it probably applies to the man, you know, that we're not supposed to be exposing our bodies either. And But I'm going to be honest with you. i never, never seen a woman go, Whoo, look at that leg. I mean, hair all over it. Whoo! I want that. <laughs> but I but I do think that, you know, it's probably it applies to us. We need to be modest as men as well, praise the Lord. Don't want to run our tank tops and Hallelujah. And our cutoffs. I'm not even going there. Brings mem- does it not bring memories to you about your pre-Christian days? Even some of you men. Okay? But when you become a believer, a child of God, amen? Now here's the thing. This is what he's warning against. That the holy sisters in the church think they're going to be in competition with the women in the church world because they're walking around, they're exposing their bodies, they're wearing, you know, immodest apparel. 
Paul said, don't. Oh, and Peter said, don't do that. Okay? But anyway, let me, let me continue. Whew, I'm going to have to hurry. In like manner also, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, orderly, properly, proper, and decent. Modest, and then the word apparel. Now, this is interesting. Because the word apparel in the Greek literally means a long flowing garment. Okay? So if you're wearing something today that is not a long flowing garment, you're not, you're not obeying the Bible. The word apparel means a long flowing garment. Obviously, then that means that pants are off for women. Because pants are not a long flowing garment. Now, this is not man's rules. This is God's Word. So we, we, a woman is supposed to wear modest, ordered, decent, proper clothing, and it is to be a long, flowing garment. Apparel. Modest apparel <clears throat> with shamefacedness. Now, shamefacedness means reverence. And shamefacedness is... Okay, you with me? Shamefacedness means reverence, not forward. Now, the Bible teaches us that if you put makeup all on your eyes to enhance your eyelashes and you put makeup all over your face, you are, you're in violation of this scripture because you're not shamefaced anymore. Okay, you're no longer reverence. You're no longer walking in humility. You are trying to be forward. Okay? Amen. So, shamefaced means reverence. And then it says, and sobriety. Sobriety means, the word sobriety means moderation. It also means to be in control. Okay? So we got modest apparel, decent, proper, order, long flowing garment. We've got reverence in the face. Shame faces, not forward. We have, the next word is um, what is it? Sobriety. That that means moderation or control. You're in control. Alright? So moderation. Alright, with broidered hair, this word broidered hair again means ex elaborate decoration to embellish, to exaggerate. It's not the simple braid. When you say broidered, you think that's the braid. No, that's not the braid. Broidered means elaborate decorations in the hair. Now, sometimes they in, in that culture, they would build these towers on the top of their head. They'd make them put some kind of gum, gummy stuff in their hair. You know, and they'd walk through the door and have to duck down to get their hair through. So we don't want any of y'all coming in here with towers on your head. We got to duck down and come through the door. That's what he's talking about, you know. And he's talking about the again exagger exaggerating of the hair and uh, hallelujah. I guess you could probably do it if you teased it. I think it would probably fall into that category. Hallelujah. You know. 
The sister looked like she put her finger in the light socket. <laughs> so a broidered is not braided. Okay? And then he goes on and he says, or gold, or pearls, or costly array. Praise the Lord. So we get in the gold and the pearls, that that's addressing jewelry. You don't want you walking in with gold and pearls all over your body. Amen. I went to a conference. I mean, not to a conference. It was a, a special meeting. And I, I'm serious as I can be with you. I was standing there and this lady walked up. And I guess she was like one of the sponsors of this meeting. And I mean, from the top of her head, literally from the top of her head, she had a hat and her dress. And I mean, you talk about sparkle. Man. She sparkled from the top of her head to the soles of her feet. And that's all. I, I don't remember what happened in that service. Okay, I, I'm being honest. I don't remember one thing that happened in that service, what they sang about or what they preached. But I remember that sparkling woman. I mean, she was shining like the stars. Now, that's distraction. If y'all come in here like that, I, I can preach and I can be anointed, praise God, and devil's being flying out and miracles taking place. But if you women come in here and you're all that gold all over and all sparkling, nobody's going to pay attention to me. Amen. Now, I, I, I know he's speaking to, to the women here, but it also applies to the men. We don't want to be wearing gold and all kinds of stuff. And you, you, You're going to get a ring that's a, a marital ring. That's okay. It's biblical. It's okay to wear jewelry as long as it serves a purpose, like a watch, okay? Or a wedding ring. It's no problem. But when you get a watch, don't have diamonds and gold and silver and as big as your arm. If you're going to get a wedding ring, it don't have to be this tall off the finger, you know, and black. Hallelujah. I have one brother in the church here. He's still in church. Thank God he knows who he is. And I, and you know who he is. But I'd go in the prayer room and the light hit his ring and it blind me and the angels. I said, brother, can, would you mind taking that off in the prayer room? It's blinding me. And I think it's blinding the angels of God, man. <laughs> and this is why I told me later, she said, you know, that, I didn't buy that ring like that. He took it down and had it specially done like that. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Don't it feel good to be down there? It feels good for me to be up here. Amen. My time's coming. But you, you know, if I came up here and I had, you know, tie, clap, big old gold, Diamond right in the middle, you know, diamond set in gold right here, and every time I turn it, it blind you, you know, and had a big old watch on my hand, and hallelujah, big old chain around my neck, silver chain with a big old medallion. Now that, that's what the Bible's talking about. We shouldn't, us, the men shouldn't be dressing like that, and women for sure shouldn't be dressing like that. It's a distraction. Amen. I think, I think I gotta be careful if as a pastor, as I'm preaching, I gotta be careful what kind of tie. I mean, it can get real, yeah, ties today can get real wild. And all you see as I'm preaching is that tie going back and forth. 
you know. And I try to be a little careful with my shoes. Amen. Now, bishops can get away with it, but I can't. Green, red, yellow. Because I've noticed, you know, if I wear a little bit of a different colored shoe, I watch the saints, their eyes go. That's the truth. And the whole time I'm preaching, they got their eyes on my shoes, man. So eventually, I just, I just communicate, hey, I, I got some new shoes, y'all. Did y'all see them? And then at that point, people stop looking at my shoes. I know what I'm doing. So all, as, and now this is in the Bible. As a believer, we're not supposed to be walking around with all this gold and silver and jewelry all over us, okay? Hallelujah. Yeah. Wedding ring's okay. Watch is okay. Hallelujah. If it serves a purpose. And I don't have time to get into all of that. But, amen. But I don't wear a watch. Okay? I don't even wear a wedding ring. My wife doesn't even wear a wedding ring. Did you know that? It's okay if you do, but we don't. Because if you live like you're married, you don't have to worry about it. If you live like you're... Can I tell you something? The ring's not going to keep you faithful. The ring's not going to keep you faithful. It's alright if you want one. But I'm saying for me, I don't need a ring because I'm going to live like I'm married. And my wife is going to live like she's married. So we don't need one. Say praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Everybody doing okay up there? So, in like manner also, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, with border, uh, not with bordered hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Amen. But which becometh women professing godliness with good works. It's, an, it's just an honor to be a Christian. It's an honor to be a Christian woman. Amen. Now, earrings, when you study the Bible, earrings, Deuteronomy 15, 7, earrings, um, they would take a person and put it all through their ear and pierce their ear. And that in the Bible, when they would pierce their ear like that, is a sign of servitude. So, a lot of people do this, men and women. These days, y'all know what I'm talking about. The men got big old studs in their ears. I thank God Thomas. I, I had to beat a lot of stuff off of Thomas Lawson, but I didn't have to beat earrings off of it. I thank God I didn't have to beat studs off of him. We had conversations on other things, but it didn't have anything to do with the earrings, thank God. But men and women wear earrings today, and it is a sign of servitude. And they don't realize it, but when they do that, it is not a sign that they're a Christian. It's a sign that they're a servant of the prince of darkness. And they don't even realize it. Deuteronomy tells you it is a symbol of servitude. And 
if you look in Genesis chapter 35, read verses 1 through 5, you will see that when Jacob renewed his relationship with his God, he looked at his family after he left Laban's house and he said to his family, you give me your idols? He requested the idols. They took their earrings off and gave it to Jacob. And he buried it under the oak tree. When he renewed his relationship with God, when he got right with God, he got rid of his earrings. Say praise the Lord. Genesis 35, 1-5. through 5. In Exodus 32, we have an example of earrings. When Aaron looked at the people and said, Give me your earrings. Men and women started pulling their earrings off, their gold earrings off. They gave it to Aaron and made a golden calf out of it. Amen? So, earrings in the Bible. Always, when you're talking about people who come and renew the relationship with God, they got rid of them. When you talk about earrings, they were uh, it was connected to a false god. Making a false god. Okay, so earrings is something that we want to stay away from. It's sad. You see little girls now. I mean, as soon as they're no sooner than they're born, they got them down there piercing their ears. And I know maybe some of y'all here right now, you, when yours was born, grandma wanted to take them. Let me take her down and get her earring. Let me take him down. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> and you had you had to put your foot down and say, No, Grandma, you're not piercing her ears. Amen. Anybody here say amen to that? Amen. Okay. Now, how short is too short when you're talking about just... Um, Apparel, how short is too short? Go to Isaiah 47, 2 through 3. Isaiah 47, 2 through 3. In Isaiah 47, 2, take the millstone, grind meal, and uncover thy locks, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers, thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not meet thee as a man. God is saying, alright, He defines for you what nakedness is. And that is the bearing of the thigh. Okay? So you keep your thighs covered. You sit down in a chair, practical holiness. You sit down in a chair, ladies. You want to make sure that your thigh is covered. That's why we always say knee length or a little bit, you know, knee length minimum. You can go down further if you want to. Okay? But you want to make sure that your thigh is always covered. That means if any of your dresses ever get where the, the thigh is being exposed, inward or outward, interior abductors or... I'm sorry. Inner thigh or outward thigh. I guess I gotta let you in on this. Me and Heath are always going at it at the gym. I say, man, you need to go work your interior abductors on that machine, you know, that goes like this. <laughs> man, he's gonna work it so fast they can hear him clapping over there. 
Man, we're going all the time. All the time, man. All the time. Anyway. <laughs> we're going to go work out in Terry Abductors today, Brother Heath? Anyway. So, <laughs> interior, abs, interior abductors, interior thighs, outward thighs, top thighs, bottom, back thighs, whatever you want to call them. Hamstring. Keep it covered. Because if you don't, then the Bible says that's... Okay, excuse me. I shouldn't have gave you all the inside joke there. You have no idea. You have no idea. Okay, so praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I wish I could tell him the whole story, Brother Heath. I'm so tempted, but I'm going on. Okay, so now you know what neck it is, right? Okay. And I can hear, I can, I can feel your spirit. I can discern your spirit right now. You're saying, Pastor, go on before you get in big trouble. And I am. All right? I mean, obviously, we don't want to, you know, if I'm a pastor and I'm preaching up here, I don't want to be uh, seeing your legs exposed. I don't want to be tempted in looking, looking that direction. And, you know what I'm saying? And there's, are you kidding me? I don't want that. Well, you've got to keep it covered. And if you're on the platform, I mean, there's some preachers now, their daughter is sitting on the platform, they got short skirts, and you can, you, you can just look right up the skirt. Now, that shouldn't be happening in the kingdom of God. Yeah, and, and, and some women today, they're on the platform of some churches, they, they, their dresses okay, are so tight and you know, you can tell, you can tell that they're wearing uh, maybe, I don't know what you call that stuff, y'all call them thongs. Do you think that should be going on in the church? I'm not talking about the, the denominator, I'm talking about Pentecost. Shouldn't be happening. We shouldn't have that kind of exposure. We shouldn't have, we should be modest. Praise the Lord. All right, Deuteronomy 22.5 says, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth. The word pertaineth means resembles unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Real fast, Leviticus chapter 11, when you have time, read Leviticus chapter 11. There are some things that were an abomination to Israel. Certain things that God said, if you eat this, it's an abomination to you. Okay? An abomination means something that's hateful. It's something that God hates. If it's an abomination to you, that's one thing. It's not good for you. If it's an abomination to God, that means God hates it. And He says in this verse, which keeps it in the moral law, by the way. This is not just talking about going off to war or some ceremonial thing. This is moral. Because if God hates it, if it's an abomination to God, that puts it in the moral realm. Amen. Now you think about it. Not only are women putting on garments that are not flowing, long flowing garments, 
not only are they putting on immodest apparel, but they're putting on pants that are cut off or shorts and they're exposing their legs, immodesty, ungodliness, unholiness. You understand? And if God hates for a woman or a man, if I put on a woman's garment, God hates that. If you put on a man's garment, God hates it. And He, he said, if it just resembles it, In our culture, pants have always been identified with the man. It is an abomination of God for me as a man to dress like a woman or anything that resembles a woman's apparel or for you as a woman to dress in anything that resembles the apparel of a man. God hates it. And it falls in His moral law. It's an abomination. Alright? Say praise the Lord. Deuteronomy 22.5 Now... In Revelation 21 and 8, the Bible says the abominable will be outside of the New Jerusalem. And if you commit this abomination, or you put on the apparel of a, of a woman if you're a man, or put on something that resembles the apparel of a man and you're a woman, that's an abomination. You won't be in heaven. Revelation 21 8. We didn't make these things up, they're in the Bible. You say, well, pastor, you say it's not in the New Testament. Yeah, it is. Apparel means long flowing garment. And what's an abomination to God of the Old Testament is still an abomination to God of the New Testament. Say amen. So there must be a distinction in the sexes. Now, even the world tells you what that distinction is. You can go to a public place over in China, in Taiwan, and you will see a woman, the way that restroom is distinguished, it's got the address on it even in China and and you go you don't even have to be able you you might not be able to read Chinese but you can look at the picture and say you're fixed to go into the woman's bathroom or you can look at the picture and say you're fixed to go into the man's bathroom come on church even the world makes that distinction so it's not just the rules of our church we get these things from the Bible okay So I've had some, well, I'm going to go do some deep study. i got to go do some deep study, you know. Well, go ahead and go do your deep study. And they come back with their philosophies. I'm going to stick right with the Bible. Okay? Appearance, let me move quickly. Um... 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair it is a shame unto him. All right, so we we as men cut our hair. Right? Why? Because it's a shame if we don't. Well, that follows under the category of 1 Corinthians six verse nine that some people won't be in the kingdom of God because they're effeminate. Effeminate means to dress or look like a woman or to have effeminate um, actions. So we don't want to violate that by wearing long hair because then we become effeminate. Now there's effeminate men that are not homosexual. Okay? 
there's, there's effeminate men. They got real long hair. They got ponytails, braids, and everything else, but they're not homosexual. It's effeminate. Okay? So anyway, does not even nature itself teach that a man have long hair? It's a shame in him. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a what? Covering. So the Bible says her hair is the covering. Every woman that prayeth or prophesies with her head uncovereth, uncovered dishonors her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. Verse, and that's verse 5. Verse 10. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Now, very quickly, if you read the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through verse 16, what is Paul doing? Are y'all getting tired? Okay, Paul's teaching on hair. And he says, for the men, short hair, cut hair. For the women, uncut hair. For the women, hair is given as a covering. So we got, we're clear on that. That's what the Bible says. Short hair on the men, uncut hair on the women. Now, look, there's two words that are used in the passage. One is shorn and one is shaven. When you have time, read it. I'll get it for you. 1 Corinthians 11. What is the definition of those two terms? The hair is given for the covering. In one translation, it says the hair is given for a covering instead of the veil. Instead of the veil. The passage doesn't teach that the woman should walk around with a, uh, a leather on the, uh, I mean a, uh, a veil on the top of her head. It says literally instead of the veil, your hair is the covering. Now, if you go to a, uh, maybe the apostolic assembly or some other group like that and the pastor says put a veil on you put a veil on because you don't want to cause division in that church if I go to an apostolic assembly church uh, and, and say I'm going to preach in that church my wife's going to wear a veil because I don't want to offend the headship of that house and I don't want to create rebellion in that house when brother Dice would go and preach in the apostolic assembly Sister Dice always wore a veil. Okay? But when he got back in, into you know, the church, whatever, there was an, didn't have that in it, she took the veil off. Understanding that the hair is the covering, not the veil. But you don't divide a man's church. You don't create rebellion in a man's church. Okay? You honor that headship that is there. So... He says, let's go back over there and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 5, But every woman that prayeth or prophesied with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that even is even all as one as she were shaven. Shaven means completely cut off. For if the woman be not covered, verse 6, let her also be what? Shorn. The word shorn means to cut the hair. To cut the hair or to cut off. I've looked at this very carefully. Okay? For if a woman be not covered, let her also be shorn or cut her hair. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven. He said it's a shame for a woman to cut her hair off 
or to shave her hair completely off. The word shorn means to cut the hair off. The word shaving means to completely cut it off. And he said it's a shame for a woman, a believing woman, to cut her hair off or shave her head, completely cut it off. That's what the Bible says. Because your hair, sisters, is your glory. And it, he says, for the angel's sake. What does that mean? They know when they look at you, if you don't cut your hair, they know that you're in submission to God Himself. Because they cover their face, their feet, and they cry, holy, holy, holy. You have power with the angels. Right? So you're not to cut your hair off or to shave it. Now, praise the Lord. If you've got, if you got here, here, practical, if you're going to go in for a surgery in your, on your head, they got to cut it to save your life. So common sense steps in at that point and says it's alright for you to cut your hair for something like that. Now, if God's Word teaches us that the woman's hair is given for a covering and you got split ends running up your hair and you're gonna, your hair's going to fall out of your head, well, first of all, you shouldn't be using too much heat on it to take care of your hair. You should eat right. because It's not just about what you put on it outwardly. It's about eating right. Amen? But, but we, we make this allowance for the sake of your hair, the health of your hair. If you've got a small split end or whatever, cut it at an angle. But don't cut your hair off. Alright? You might think, well, that's that's violating the Scripture. Well, if that's your conviction, then don't even cut the split in. But the point being is, if you cut it or you shave it, it's a shame to you. That's the Bible. Now look at the last verse, verse 16 of, the, of that teaching. Verse 16 says, but if any man, listen carefully, but if any man seem to be contentious, we have no other custom, neither the churches of God. Now, when you looked at that in your King James Version, it says we have no such custom. Let me read it again. But if any man seem to be contentious, that means argumentative. They want to argue about it. Any person wants to argue about this, we have no such custom. Now, it sounds like Paul just got through teaching on hair that a woman shouldn't cut her hair or shave her head and that a man should cut his. And then it sounds like he's saying, well, we don't, we don't practice this. We have no such custom. Are you kidding me? He didn't lay down that teaching and then say, don't worry about it because we don't have this custom. The word such misleads you. The Greek word is this. Sometimes translated such. But the Greek word is toi, toi utos. Toi utos. Toi utos. And that literally can be translated other. And it should be translated other. So that when Paul teaches the churches on hair, he, it, it would be translated this way, verse 16, but if any man seem to be contentious or argumentative, we have no other custom, neither the churches of God. 
no other custom. He said, this is the only custom that we have as apostles and that the church has. This is the standard. Okay? Now, if you want to leave it translated such, then Paul would have to be talking about a custom outside of the church that is not practiced by the church. And that custom outside of the church that was practiced women would cut their hair off and offer it to the gods. So if Paul is making reference to we have no, other, we have no such custom in the churches of God, he's talking about the custom of cutting the hair and offering it to the gods. But if you just look at it with that word in the Greek being translated as other, he's saying this is the standard. Okay? It's amazing to me how people try to interpret the Bible. They come to that one verse and say, okay, everything Paul just said, he said, throw it away. We're not paying attention to it. We don't have, it. We don't have this in our church. Are you kidding me? Come on, the context will tell you. He's establishing solid ground, solid rock. This is the way the believing woman should handle her hair. Okay? How many of y'all love the Lord today? I promise you I'm almost done. For this cause ought the woman to have power over her head because of the angels. You have power with angels. 1 Corinthians 11.10 So to shear or shorn means to cut. Shave means to cut totally off. Aren't you glad for the truth? Now I got people, yeah, we're going to take him on. I got a sister in the church. They got a family member. I'm going to take him on. You know what I told I told sister I told the sister in the church I said I don't waste my time with people like that they're not going to take me on if if any man doesn't ha if any man seems to be argumentative this is the standard this is the custom we have no other standard neither the churches of God all right I'm not going to waste time arguing with you. Me, I love the Lord. In Ezekiel 16, verse 7, I've caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field. Thou art increased and waxing great. Thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned and thy hair is grown. Whereas thou was naked and bare when God's blessing was on His church. Ezekiel 16, verse 7, He said her hair's grown. Amen. Amen. I mean, I love the Lord. Yeah. Psalm 149, verse 4, For the Lord take a pleasure in His people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Praise God. So we're kind of touching on what we've already talked about, shamefacedness with makeup and things. Write these Scriptures down on makeup. Proverbs 6.25. Proverbs 6.25. Jezebel, 2 Kings 9.30. She painted her face. Proverbs 6.25 talks about the harlot that, that um, don't, don't, don't fall for her eyelashes. Um, Ezekiel 23 and 40. Jeremiah 4.30. Read those scriptures, okay? On painting. Painting of the face.
Okay, y'all with me? You don't need makeup. You don't need makeup. He says he'll beautify the meek with salvation. Hallelujah. Andy Griffith, Sheriff Andy, Andy Taylor, of, of, you remember that show, Mayberry? He called it female war paint. <laughs> you don't need no female war paint. Amen. There were little, literally bills. Uh, British Parliament uh, in most of American colonies, most American colonies abandoned uh, bills. The 1700s outlawed painting of the face. Okay, First Timothy four eight for bodily exercise. Get into exercise. Praise God. Bodily exercise profits a little. But godliness is profitable unto all things, living, having promise of life that now is and end of that which is to come. How many want to be godly? It's profitable. Why? Because you'll have the promise of life that now is and that which is to come. Praise the Lord. Okay? Y'all doing all right? Esther, chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. She used sweet spices and bitter spices. Praise God. Um, verify that for me. It's been a while since I looked at that. But that's all she needed. She needed fragrances for the body. Amen. She was fixing to go, you know, like the harem was going and presenting themselves so the king could pick a new queen. And so many of them, they painted themselves up and everything else and came before the, the king. The Bible says all that Esther needed or wanted was the fragrance, the oils. Sweet and bitter. That's all she needed. Hallelujah. And she won the heart of the king. She won the heart of the king. Okay? Which brings me to another question. Is perfume alright? Is perfume alright? Moderation. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. It's good. It's good because the Song of Solomon teaches it. The Book of Esther teaches it. She's a rep she pictures the church as a bride for the king. She requested those those things that would you know oils and so on and so forth. Song of Solomon has it in it. So you you are free to wear perfume, things like that. Like Brother Daniel says, moderation. Okay. Um, hallelujah. You know, the Bible's clear on that. It, it helps with bacterial problems. Right? Okay, so I just want to be sure you understand where we are biblically on perfume. I don't think you're going to go, go to hell if you wear perfume. But I think if you make perfume your God, you will. Okay? And not long ago, Sister Lori, you know, had sent me that that little clip on that young lady, and she's talking about this one particular girl that was in hell, and she was, I guess, obsessed with a certain perfume. Well, it wasn't. It can't be that the perfume put her there. She must have made it an idol, okay? Because the Bible is clear. It's not. It's not wrong to wear perfume.
Okay, amen. I'm almost done. Can the world identify us as Christians? World War II, as men went to war, women went to the factories. They cut their hair, started smoking, drinking alcohol, began to act like men. And so the question always comes up, well, what about all these other churches? God is the same. God doesn't change. What He requires of you, He requires of them. It doesn't matter if they go to another church and that church says it's okay. God doesn't change. Just because they don't do it doesn't mean it's not in the Bible. Give the Lord praise. One last thing real fast. Hallelujah. Is that one thing I want to share with you. And this is not, I'm not saying this is Bible inspired scripture or anything like that. But I think it's interesting. The book of Jude talks about a book called the book of Enoch. And this is actual copy right out of that book. Okay, off, off of my logos. And the fall of angels, the, de the demoralization of mankind, the intercession of, of the angels on behalf of mankind, the dooms pronounced by God on the angels, the messianic kingdom, and then, okay. So this is talking about the fallen ones of Genesis chapter 6. And they came down. Okay, and they had relationships with women. And what came from them were giants, the Nephilim. In this book of Enoch, it says, these fallen angels, um, Azazel, taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with a sword or a shield or a knife, but there must be something in them teaching man these things that were was sinister or evil, okay? Probably in, in use. Goes on. Um, and made known to them the metals of the earth, the art of working them, bracelets, ornaments, and the use of animal antimony and the beautifying of the eyelids and all kinds of costly stones and all coloring tinctures. And there was much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray, and became corrupt in their ways. Right? So I don't really think that we would want to participate in something that was taught by fallen angels as far as the painting of the eyelids or the beautifying of the eyelids. It's just based on this and other things in the scripture. I thank God for the truth. So, in closing, separation affects our conversation, our reading material, our thoughts and actions, recreation and pleasure, appearances. And this is obviously not complete, but I'm doing my best. Um, one last thing. In anything you do, any place you go to, whatever, ask these questions and you'll get your answer as should you do it. Number one, does the Bible condemn this? First question, does the Bible condemn this? Number two, can I pray and ask Jesus to bless it? Okay. Will this be a blessing to others or a stumbling block? Will this hinder in any manner my service to Jesus? So, those are good guidelines. 
to ask yourself as you go and get involved in the things of the world. In closing, real fast, perfection. Moving from, moving from perfection means to be complete. No defects, finished or whole. Um, Genesis 6 verse 9 says Noah was perfect in his generation. The question was, can you be perfect? Yes, you can. We're not talking about sinless perfection. It says Noah was perfect in his generation. Genesis 6 9. Job 1, 1 through 8, 2 verse 3 says it was he was perfect before God. Hezekiah 2 Kings 20, 2 through 5 says he was perfect. He had a perfect heart before God. Hezekiah had a perfect heart before God. Abraham, God said to Abraham that to walk before him and be thou perfect. Genesis 17, 1. Okay, so this is not sinless perfection. But the Bible is very clear that there were men in the Bible that were perfect before the Lord, perfect in heart. Okay? Sinless perfection does not come until the second coming of Jesus when that sin nature is eradicated forever. When you get a glorified body. But it is possible for you and I to live perfect in this world in the sense that you are perfect in your heart. That means you are totally submitted to God in your life and in your heart. Okay? So not sinless perfection, but a heart surrendered and totally submitted to Him is possible in this life. The future. Sinless perfection, impossible. It is impossible to fail in the future when you get a glorified body. It's impossible to sin. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, we've already read that to you. Ephesians 4.13, 1 Thessalonians 3.10, Hebrews 13.20-21, Ephesians 1.13-14. Okay? future, sinless perfection. So when we're talking about perfect in the Bible, when Jesus said be perfect, you're not saying that you're going to be sinless perfection like, like Jesus. But it does mean that you're going to be completely, totally submitted in heart to God. Perfect in heart. Okay? Praise the Lord. In the book of Hebrews, it's recorded 17 times that word perfect. 17 times mentioned in Hebrews. Uh, it says to press on to perfection and maintain a perfect heart in Psalm 138, verse 8. With me? Okay. Glorification, next benefit, Romans chapter 8. Glorification means brightness, majesty, or honor. Defined. Okay. The final work of redemption is glorification. It speaks of the resurrection of the body. It speaks to being conformed into his image, Romans 8, 17 through 18. And at that point, we will uh, experience the original purpose of man that God had for us. It will be realized. Okay? So that concludes the benefits of redemption. And I pray something that we've taught you, something that we've preached this morning, helps you to grow in your, your relationship with God. Because it is a great honor to have these benefits, the benefits of sanctification, the benefits of perfection, the benefits of glorification. These are things that the believer have in the atonement. Lord bless you. Let's stand. Father, we come before you right now. We ask your blessings to be upon your people. Thank you for your awesome word today. God, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would change our lives as we yield to you. Yahweh in Kaddish, the Lord that sanctifies us. 
is your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord. Thank you for staying late.